I would like to welcome you to this latest installment of A Few Minutes With. Uh, in the Episcopal Church and in a lot of denominations, there's talk often about bivocational ministry, uh, keeping one foot in ordained ministry and one foot in the world. And my guest today has done that in spades, uh, a practicing attorney, uh, the 37th Attorney General from Missouri, a three-term member of the U.S. Senate, 24th U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Special Envoy to Sudan, uh, Special Counsel to the Department of Justice, and through it all, an ordained Episcopal priest, Senator John Danforth. Senator, thank you so much for being with me today. Great. Good to be with you. I'm looking forward to this. I have to ask you at the outset, uh, I saw that when you graduated from Yale, you got both your law degree and your divinity degree at the same time. What in the world was it like doing two such rigorous studies courses simultaneously? Well, it was over five years. I didn't quite pack it all into the same time, but I was a full-time student at Yale Divinity School for two years, and then I decided to switch to the law school, but I was so far along in Divinity School that I asked if I could spread the last year at Divinity School over the three years in law school. So I finished them both at the same time, but it was a five-year program. And I have to say <clears throat> that the last year of divinity school that I spread over the three years was not exactly intense. I, I took the easiest courses I could possibly <laughs> take and uh, kind of skated through that. Law school was challenging enough, but it was all in all, it was a good experience. And um, I'm glad I did them both. Well, if you'd be willing to share, you know, coming out of Yale, you have two tracks that you could go down. Uh, you were ordained an Episcopal priest, so you had the option for parish ministry, but also with a law degree to go into law practice. What was that process of discernment like for you? Well, when I was, you know, until I was um, a junior, after my junior year in college, I was set for law school. That was what I wanted to do. And I was always interested in politics since I was a, <clears throat> a child. So um, that was the plan. And then between my junior and senior years in college, I thought that I, I don't know if you would really call it a calling, but I thought that I had to go to divinity school and I did. <clears throat> and at that time, my idea was, okay, well, I'll end up being either in the parish ministry or teaching religion. And after I got to divinity school and was there a while, I, I really felt that those were not my strong suits. And so I reverted to law school with the idea of <clears throat> going back to what I originally intended to do, <clears throat> but finish out the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, uh, the time at divinity school. So that's what it was like. And then there was um, a lot of back and forthing with my, my then bishop, really a wonderful man, and George Cadigan, as to whether I would be ordained or not. And uh, so it was like, you know, what do you want to do, Jack? I don't know, Bishop, what do you want me to do? I don't know, what do you want to do? And it was like that for some considerable period of time. And then we had a meeting one day and and decided that, okay, I'll, I'll go for ordination. So that's what happened. But as far as the practice of the ministry is concerned, 
I've really always been a fifth wheel in the ministry. I respect so much what the parish clergy does and, and the, the vocation that that is. But I, and I've always, well, until I reached retirement age, I had some responsibility at a parish church, but it was also always, what can I fit in with the rest of my life, which was being a lawyer and for most of the time being in politics. Well, I've, I've been fascinated uh, to read that, especially in your time in the Senate, it started in New York when you were practicing <laughs> law, but in your time in the Senate, you... Uh, uh, for instance, you helped Frank Wade out, who is a hero of mine. I had a class with him at seminary on the pastoral offices, but helped him out by celebrating Eucharist on Tuesday mornings and by taking communion to, to shut-ins that lived in the D.C. area. And I think you even baptized Senator Bacchus's son. I did, yes. Right. What, when you had an opportunity uh, to consider it, how did it hit you that not only were you thinking about the intersection of faith and public life, but you were actually standing in that intersection. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I was doing both, but uh, I clearly have always seen the distinction between the two. And I did not want to give the impression that I was somehow sort of the the pastor of the people of Missouri, or that I was, you know, God's own agent in the U.S. Senate. Um, I didn't think that um, my faith dictated particularly position, particular positions on issues, and uh, <clears throat> so there was really a distinction in my own mind. I was clearly both. I mean, I, I wasn't like a, a senator one minute and then the next minute a priest. I, that was not what I was. I was always, I was always a priest. I was always ordained. But as far as really doing the job is concerned, I was not, you know, the, um, the clerical, you know, the Reverend Jack in the, uh, in the U.S. Senate. Did you ever find that any of your colleagues that knew you were ordained approached you differently on certain things than they would if uh, you had just been yeah, a standard? I don't think so. I mean, there's some things that I did, you know, I officiated at some funerals for people. I baptized Max Bacchus's son, whom I saw maybe five years ago, and he was about six foot five. And I said, <laughs> well, you changed. <laughs> but, uh, and I did some funerals for people, including people and some people in the Senate, one cabinet member who died, but no, I don't think, I think people saw me more as a senator and, and certainly not as, you know, their priest. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to shift your most recent book that came out uh, five years ago, The Relevance of uh, Religion, is a phenomenal read. It's very fascinating. And you know, as I was reading it, I was thinking that there's still somewhat of a divide in the pews and certainly in society at large for people that on one side think faith should be involved, their faith should lead them to be involved, and then there are others that think that faith and politics should maintain this strict division. And, you know, preaching to a uh, split congregation like that, I'm certainly cognizant every time I get in the pulpit of, you know, 
the danger that comes with what Karl Barth said about taking the newspaper and the Bible and reading them together, but, you know, reading the newspaper in the context of the Bible. Do you think, uh, and not being in parish ministry, you may have a different view on this, but do you think that uh, the pulpit should be the starting point for living into our prophetic call, or do you think it should be something that echoes things that we lay the groundwork in other areas before them? Well, first, let me thank you for telling me that you read my book. I was always wondering who that person was. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, I, I think that I think that our faith informs how we go about politics and that it should. And in fact, I think we, we, that is faithful people and the church specifically, should be much more engaged and much more um, focused on what we, what our ministry is to the broader world, not just our own little, you know, as you say, the congregation or from the pulpit. Not just that, but what do we have to say to America today in the year 2021? But I don't think that that's a matter of <clears throat> what's your agenda on specific issues or what's your political platform, because that's just politics. I mean, people have various views on <clears throat> politics, various judgments on what sorts of policies make sense, what sorts of policies don't make sense. That's politics. And the way politics works, it's usually a matter of compromise and should be, because it won't work if it isn't. I mean, it's right now, right today, dysfunction, because it's people saying, I'm right, you're wrong. You know, it just doesn't work that way. But while I don't think that our faith dictates position, particular positions on policies and that it shouldn't, and it becomes divisive when it attempts to do that. I think that it informs how we go about politics. And I mean, for example, if we say, you know, well, what do the Ten Commandments tell us? The don't, don't, don't worship idols. Okay, that's one thing. What's that mean today? Well, we, we don't have little statues that we worship. You know, it's not like the old idolatry of, of you know, some statue of something. But it's, it's putting something in front of God, before God. It's putting something as your priority in, favor, in front of, before God. So what's that mean? And I think that that means looking at politics in perspective and being able to go about it seriously, but knowing that my particular position or my particular political philosophy doesn't rise to the level of being uh, holy. It's just politics. Politics mm -hmm. is politics. It's important. And um, it's, um, I, I just think that that's really key. Well, there were uh, three themes that uh, ran in variations, but they were kind of the thread that I saw running throughout the book. And it was talking about the things that uh, we as people of faith, Christians, Episcopalians, you know, across the board, uh, you know, being prophetic, uh, feeling uh, the need for people to exercise the healing ministries that we have within ourselves and the 
call for us to exercise uh, the the gift and the the work of reconciliation. Uh, and as you said, nowhere does the Bible say we're supposed to stay out of people's hair. We're called, and you quote from Genesis, and you quote from uh, the words of Jesus to the disciples, and uh, even Paul about areas where we're supposed to be engaged. Um, but I think sometimes the work has to begin, and I, you've alluded to this, work has to begin with the people in the pews. So how do we get them to engage in this process of reconciliation with themselves before they take that and then begin the process of trying to reconcile in the public square? Yeah. Um, so well, you, the first of the three that you stated were called upon to be prophetic. This is, of course, a tradition that goes way back to ancient Israel. And it's basically um, an adversarial stance. Um, Thus says the Lord. <laughs> and, you know, you are not on the side of the Lord. And it's kind of an accusatory thing. And while that's part of our tradition and it has its time and its place, I think that today, in the year 2021, everybody is in everybody's face all the time. Mm -hmm. And that this is, this is not the time for us to be sort of the common scolds of the world. You know, it, it's a time for us to, to be more pastoral and to recognize the good in, in most people, all people really, but to try to evoke that goodness. And, and this is a big gift that we have to make now. This is what we can do. We can, we can overcome the estrangement that's, that's there today in America, all too, all too visible. We can overcome that. And I think this should be our ministry. And I think that, I think that what we should be doing is to expand on something that we do within the church. We do it in our liturgy. Namely, we exchange the peace. And what do we do when we exchange the peace? What we do when we exchange the peace is we turn to whoever's next to us. We may know the person, we may not know the person. We may think that the person is a great person. We may think, wow, you know, I'd, I'd go to the other side of the street if I saw this person coming down the, the sidewalk at me. But we turn to that person and we extend a hand and we say, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And I think that that's what our ministry is now and should be. We are, we're not doing it very well, but it should be to the world. But we wouldn't say to, you know, Joe Dokes, just some stranger, the peace of the Lord. They think that, well, that's, that's really, you know, sanctimonious. Right. What we would say is, I'm your friend. I'm your friend. Mm. And it's, it's treating somebody who is different from you are as your friend. It's treating somebody who's politically different from you as your friend. It's treating somebody who you may even think of your enemy as your friend. I think that's what we should be doing. But I think what we 
tend to be doing is either ignoring other people or treating them as though they are evil people, you know, racists or awful people. And we've got to get in their faces and confront them. And they, they probably aren't. They probably are well-meaning souls. But you can be off-putting to them or you can be, the word is inclusive, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. But inclusive means to somebody who you, you just don't share the same viewpoint, you're not the same as that person. You may even think that this person's not such a great person, but you say, I'm your friend. And if we were to do that, if we, like in the Episcopal Church, our small little church, we are small, we're less than 1% of the population, but if we make it our business to practice letting people know that there are our friends, that changes the culture. That's we're in the business then in our church by taking the exchange of the peace outside of our church of changing the culture. That's a big deal. And it would be a major ministry that we have, that we could offer to the country at large. Well, and it, it goes to the heart of something else that you've talked about in your writing, uh, the area of self-interest. And, uh, you know, it sounds like that if, if we take the piece outside the church and uh, change the words to, I love you, you're my friend, that it takes away from interest for ourselves and starts to grow the areas of communal interest and interest for society and the country at large. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, um, <clears throat> so I was in the Senate for, you know, 18 years, and it was a long time ago. And people sometimes ask me, well, do you miss it? Well, I loved it when I did it. But would I like to be there now? No. And one of the, because then we did try to work things out. I mean, we had committees that met, the, the so-called regular order. How does a bill become a law? We did all that. Now it's, it's much more sort of individual entrepreneurs getting on the TV are putting out their posts on social media. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the thing then was, you mentioned Max Bach as well. He was a Democrat. I'm a, a, I am a Republican. We were both in the Senate Finance Committee. Here he asked me to baptize his child. Mm -hmm. But there, there was <clears throat> this sense of friendship and it crossed party lines. And in those days, families lived in Washington. Spouses lived there for the most part. Now, a lot of times they don't. And some members of Congress sleep in their offices. So they're isolated from each other. Mm -hmm. One member of the, of the Senate told me that he couldn't think of five other senators who would want to have to his house for dinner. Well, you lose that social lubrication that makes it possible for you to work together on contentious matters mm -hmm. and do so in an atmosphere of friendship. That's big. And I think it's missing now. <clears throat> right now we have really dysfunction in the Congress. 
Yeah, it's, uh, you know, thinking about it, we were talking before we started recording this, uh, before seminary, I worked in the House of Representatives uh, as a press secretary primarily for about 10 years. But I was at the advantage, or had the advantage of working with members that would go out to dinner with folks from across the aisle and have dinner and drinks and hammer out issues and come in the next day. And it was, you know, things were resolved, or at least there was some sort of compromise. Uh, Codels were opportunities for congressional delegations for people that don't know the parlance. Uh, People on Codels would, you know, have an opportunity to get to know one another in a way that they wouldn't with the come to the floor, you debate, you vote, you go home. Mm -hmm. No, it's true. And I, a couple of years ago, I wrote uh, an op-ed piece in the in the St. Louis paper, the Boat Dispatch, and it was it was about my relationship for ten years when we overlapped in the U.S. Senate with Tom Eagleton. Mm-hmm. Now Eagleton was a uh, Democrat, I a Republican. He was politically more liberal than I. There are a lot of things we didn't agree on but we were friends. And I'll tell you the first thing that the night that I was sworn in, we had a little family dinner party, just family there, and we invited Tom and Barbara Eagleton. And during a quiet time during that dinner, he turned to me and he said, I know I wish your father were alive. Now, can you imagine anything more personal to say to somebody that you really didn't know very well? than that, but he said it, and it set the tone for our relationship, and we liked each other, our offices liked each other, we got along, didn't agree, but we got along. So I wrote this opinion piece in the Post-Dispatch, and I said, let's make, let's make a, let's make an arrangement, and let's, let's have it be that we're going to treat our opponents as if they were friends. We're going to treat our opponents as friends. And we'll call ourselves a club. We'll make a club and we'll call it the Eagleton Club. And there won't be any dues, there won't be any meetings. It will just be this common commitment of people to treat political adversaries as though they're friends. And I got more response, more favorable response to that opinion piece than anything I've ever written. Anything I've ever written. And I concluded it by saying, if you want to be a member of the club, let me know. Just send me a little message. Doesn't have to say much, just a few words to say, you know, dear Jack, I'm an Eagleton. So the next day my phone rings in my office And this woman's voice says, Hi, Jack, I'm in Eagleton. And it was Barbara Eagleton, it was Tom's widow. It was the neatest thing. But it was an example of that and how, and we're missing that now. We, We really are. We are a nation of people who are convinced we're right, the other guy is wrong, and we need to be in your face, and we need to expose you, and out you, and shame you. And it's become a style now in American life. You see it on university campuses, you see it all over the place, and clearly you see it 
in politics and our ministry should be to overcome that. That should be the ministry of reconciliation. And we can do it by assuming responsibility. But I do not believe that at this time in our history, the prophetic mode, which is that of getting in people's faces, is the right one for this time. You know, I'm thinking about uh, the chapter you wrote on uh, creating a, or building a virtuous citizenry or a, a country of virtue. Uh, and you, you cited the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, as an example of going out of your way to build that accepting and loving and inclusive community where you don't act as the two that pass by the injured man. You're the one that goes across. And then listen to you talk about the Eagleton Club and the relationship you built. It sound, I can almost hear the parable at the heart of that is building this community where you would go to the other side of the road for these people uh, out of a sense of shared respect and uh, friendship. And people are different. I mean, the Samaritan was different. Mm -hmm. Different. Ethnically different, religiously different. And that's the deal. I mean, the great, the great mission of our country is e pluribus unum. The great mission is holding together in one country all these different people, mm -hmm. all these different interests, different points of view, different whatever, holding them all together. And that really is what, what the, I believe, what the gospel has to say to us that you know that 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 we are that we are one that that's the high priestly prayer right that we should all mm -hmm. be one. and it's also the way that our system was set up our constitution was set up it was set up to embrace all these differences particularly article 1 of the constitution that is mm -hmm. the congress for all these people from all over the place, then it was only 13 states. Now it's, you know, 330 million people. But where they all have a place to go to try to work things out. And this is something that all of us should be working on. How to think of our government, and particularly how to restore the place of Congress in our government as the forum for bringing all these interests together and working things out. Right now that's gone. Congress really doesn't, doesn't work, but it's, that would be a big project for us, I think. I wonder too about those in the pews, uh, people of faith that uh, don't necessarily think that raising their voice or exercising uh, their voice matters. And there's a great story you tell about Russell Long uh, when you were a freshman senator, of course, Senator Long was a, a legend in the Senate, but how you came into your very first meeting, it wasn't even a bill markup. It was just a conversation about, uh, I think it was a letter. Yeah. And you built up the courage and threw out what you asked for. And he took it and, you know, you, as you write, you walked out and immediately sent off a press release saying you'd reduce taxes by $8 million. But the value I found there, and I wonder if you'd speak about this as it relates to people in the pews exercising their voice, he gave everybody an opportunity to be heard and built up their sense of worth and feeling free to say what they thought. 
Yeah, it was really a it was really a neat little story and uh, kind of a funny story. But I I had just been elected to the Senate. I had just been placed on the Finance Committee, which is the tax writing committee of the Senate. And I was one of I think thirty eight or thirty nine Republican senators. So that's insignificant. I mean that is. If you're the freshman senator when you and the minority when they're only 38, 39, whatever it was, <laughs> it's nothing. You yeah. know, you may yeah. as well be a sack of potatoes. But there I was, and I showed up in the finance committee, and the great Russell Long was the chairman. He was very clever, very entertaining, loved him, terrific. But I didn't know him at that point. He didn't know me from anybody. So we were writing this letter to the budget committee. That's what it was. It was just a letter. And the letter was, what's our plan for the coming year? It wasn't legislating. It was just writing a letter. Here's what we think we're going to be doing. And so there was this pause during this drafting of the letter. And I put my hand up. And Russell Long looked down the table at this person he'd never seen before. And he said, well, what's the senator's idea? And I said, being a Republican, I said, well, I think we should have a tax cut. And he said, oh, how much of a tax cut? Well, I hadn't thought about that. So I said, well, $5 billion. Now, this is back in 1976 when it was worth much more than it is today, but mm -hmm. seemed like a good number, five billion. And Russell Lung said, okay, is there any objection? Okay, that's agreed to. And I thought, wow, <laughs> am I ever in the right place? This job is gonna be great. So then I rushed back to my office and cranked out a press release about this wonderful $5 billion tax. I hadn't done anything of the kind. It was just a letter. It was nothing. But then the question is, okay, why did Russell Long, the chairman of the committee and a Democrat, do that for me? And I know the reason, because I talked to him about a number of years later. He wanted to include me in the work of the committee. And he wanted me to look. He knew I was going to turn out a press release. But this was his way of saying, look, you're part of this. You're into this. And that committee really did work, and everything was done on a bipartisan basis. I mean, everything. It was just a terrific lesson. But again, it's the lesson of, okay, how do you treat somebody who's entirely different from you? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and politically, it works. And politically, the opposite approach of simply taking positions doesn't work. And I can see in listening to you retell the story after having read it, I'm thinking too that it's it's almost a parable too for the way that we in parish ministry 
for those that don't feel, you know, you have the stewardship drive every year where you're asking for uh, pledges of time, talent, and treasure, and people not signing up because they don't think they have a specific gift for it. And this story with Senator Long and you, for me, almost as a parable for how we can approach people in our own congregations and faith communities and say, you are important, you are valued, we want to hear what you have to say and what you have to contribute. Of course, yeah. I mean, it really is. And, and from a political standpoint, it's about making the country function. I mean, it's a big deal today. Mm -hmm. and, and it should be our external as well as our internal message. You make it clear in your writing, and I think you're actually, if I remember correctly, your undergraduate thesis was on Reinhold Niebuhr. Right. Uh, but throughout this most recent book, you talk about Niebuhr on, on several occasions and the impact that he's had on you and, and your thought and your approach to uh, uh, religion and, and public life. Um, knowing what you know about him and what you learned in all of your research, if he was to come back today, what do you think he would say? Do you think his message would be any different than it was before? Or do you think it's what he said then is even more vital now? Yeah, you know, uh, Randall Niebuhr, who was, you know, quite liberal politically, would probably, he would, <laughs> he would probably say, what do you mean I've got anything in common with you, Danforth? I mean, but I I think that the basic message of, um, of Niebuhr was the message of, of being, you know, resisting pride, resisting idolatry, resisting turning something that wasn't God into a God. And so I think that he would, he would be concerned about a system now that isn't working and sort of accommodating all kinds of people and, this, and a politics in which it's my way or the highway. I think mm -hmm. that he would, he would not want that. Yeah. Well, I've got one final question for you. I want to put you in the situation where imagine you have an opportunity to walk into the Senate floor and go down to the well or up onto the rostrum uh, and address people with your own call. And I know this is going to be sort of, a, I guess, a summative answer to everything that you've written and talked about. But if you had that opportunity to go down on front of C-SPAN 2 and the media and your fellow senators in the world, uh, what would you say five years on from having written this book about what you see now and what people need to need to do? I'd probably say, where's the exit? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think what I would, that would be quite practical. I think what I would say is restore what we call the regular order. Mm -hmm. That is, restore the basic system that was in place for how a bill becomes a law, which means the bill is introduced, it's referred to a committee, there are hearings, there's a markup in the committee, there are amendments, people argue about the amendments, the bill, the amendments are agreed to, not agreed to, bill referred to the floor, then the same thing in the floor, amendments, and it turns out to be messy it is i say it's sausage making but it's a process of accommodating 
different points of view in reaching some conclusion, even if the conclusion is insufficient from most people's point of view, but it's something. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I would say to them. It's really important to restore the structure of making the system work <laughs> and you don't have that now. So right now you've got the leadership of the party simply introducing a bill because it doesn't go through the committee process where amendments aren't allowed. Most of them are not, aren't allowed on the floor. And so it's, it's, it, it's now it's a system of here's the Republican position, here's the Democratic position, forget about what you, the ordinary member, is doing. So I think I would say restore the regular order, restore the committees, restore the role of individual senators. It would not be preaching at them, but it would be reaching the same sort of thing that I think is our calling. That is holding things together, you know? In, in Christ, all things hold together. Well, isn't that a great thing to just hold yeah. together as opposed to fragment? And as you were talking, I had this image. I wonder too what it would be like in the House and Senate of rather than having the House and Senate chaplains or guest clergy offer the opening prayers, having members of the House and Senate sign up to be the ones to give the opening prayers. I wonder what impact that might have. If any at all. I don't think so. I mean, uh, how many people, when they open the Senate, how many people are on the floor or even listening in? I was going to say, not counting staff? <laughs> no, not many. I, I, don't, I, I don't think there's any, I don't think that there's any quickie like that that's mm -hmm. going to work. But I think what does work is, you know, this is what we can, what we, I mean, talking about faithful people can bring to people in politics. What does work is to simply say, you know, your point of view, your party, your position on issues are not holy. Mm -hmm. They're not sacrosanct. And the other guy's positions aren't evil and beyond the pale. This is politics. It's, you know, it's like the parable of the pearl of great price, right? Mm -hmm. That the, par the, the pearl of great price is God's kingdom. But the merchant sells everything for the pearl of great price, meaning everything else is relative. Mm -hmm. Everything is relative. And politics, politics is simply politics. I tell a story, and I think that book certainly told it a number of times, but during one of my re-elections, it was a very close election, and I thought, gee, maybe I'm going to lose. And I was kind of blue, and my then 15-year-old daughter, Dee Dee, tried to cheer me up one day. And and uh, she said about my re-election, well, it's not the World Series. And it, it isn't. Politics isn't the World Series. And it's certainly not religion. 
Well, I know we've only begun to scratch the surface, but I do encourage everybody because I'm immediate gratification. When I got the book, I got it on Kindle. So I invite everybody to read this. It's, it's thought provoking uh, for people like me that have had experience working in the halls of, of government. Uh, it certainly puts a new light on things and I'm just grateful for what you've done, what you've contributed to the public discourse and what you've done to try and uh, urge people to be those that bring about reconciliation. So Senator, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care and God bless. Thanks.